We have had the chance to, and the privilege of being a part of uh, Midtown Creve Hall since the very, very beginning. I used to drive this really ugly, super loud white box truck that we affectionately named Great White um, because everything that we needed to do church was in the box of that box truck. And my wife and I, before we were even married, uh, before we had kids, would drive that and set up. And this is at the, uh, the old building that, you know, probably most of you remember because it's not been that long, but... Um, I'm really excited to see new faces. I'm actually thrilled that I don't know everybody here because that's just a testament to how the Lord has brought people and taken people and has you know, built up his church here in Creve Hall. So my name is Jonathan Nash. Um, my wife is Susie. You've probably seen her and our five kids running around. Y'all have cared for my wife a lot um, as I have, uh, we have been planting a new congregation of Midtown in the Napier community um, and I get tied up on Sunday mornings a lot of times doing church planting work um, before we have a, a regularly meeting service. And so my wife has been coming here, um, even when I've not been here. So it's just a, it's a gift that I know that she gets cared for by, by this community. So again, all kinds of ways I could celebrate and, and just give testament to how excited I am to get to preach. Um, but I am going to preach. And so let's open uh, the word. Um, I'm going to have a reader come in just a second, Kat, but just, just hang tight because I want to give just a little bit of context. So we're in the book of Acts. Um, we're, we're walking through this story of the movement that Jesus created, because Jesus started a movement in the Gospels. There was almost no organization of the movement. It was just 12 dudes, and then these other men and women that were uh, associated with them. And then now we're moving from the movement to the organization of the church, how you know, God's people have uh, taken him at his word, that he is going to be with them, and they are going now out to build the church that he asked them to build. And so they're beginning to organize it. And in the story we're in this morning in Acts chapter 11, um, we, we see the problems that happen when you try to organize a movement and when you try to put people in charge of God's work. We see the clashes that exist when different people come together to love one God, because that's what we believe. But there's clashes. And so I'm going to talk this morning about tension and a, and a particular kind of tension. I actually, I'm going to confess, I love tension. I do. Some of you are laughing because you understand what I mean. I actually love it. I think it's, it's one of the gifts God's given me, many weaknesses, but one gift he's given me is to really appreciate tension and appreciate how in the Christian life we're constantly faced with times that we have to believe two things that don't seem like they could possibly be true at the same time, but they are. Let me just give you a few examples. When Jesus says to be in the world but not of the world, that's a tension. And he doesn't say, try. He says, do it. I, I command you, be in the world, but not of the world. He also says, you find your strength in weakness. That's a foundational belief of Christianity, that we find our strength in our weakness. That's a tension. We find joy and fulfillment in the present. We're called and commanded and given opportunity to find our joy and our fulfillment in the present, and yet... Scripture says, you're awaiting a kingdom that's not to come yet. And so in this space, we groan with the tension like, like two ropes. I got this image, I think kind of in pictures, and I got this image of like a ship that the wind blows on the ship and it's creaking and straining under the, the tension that exists when different things get pulled. And yet, what happens when wind hits a ship? It moves forward, right? So that's what it means to be a Christian, is to constantly have the wind of faith blowing against you and pulling you in these different directions. And Jesus 
commands us to live in that tension, and he says, I'm with you in that. And so one of the tensions of walking as Christ followers together in community is what we're going to look at this morning. And it's, the, it's what I'm going to call the exclusivity and inclusivity of Christianity. So that's another tension that you live with as, as Christians, is that we are part of an exclusive faith that's called to be radically inclusive. So what in the world does that mean? Kat, can you come read? Thank you, everyone. Give it up for Kat Scheibe. So she's going to be reading from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Good morning. I have like the four-week lingering cough thing going on, so I'm, I'm not contagious, but I'm, I apologize if I sound sick. I trust you, Kat. <laughs> okay, this is Acts 11, 1 through 18. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised sorry, I'm gonna switch, believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the begin- beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and said, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kat. Let me pray real quick. Lord, um, as we now dive into your word, pray that you would uh, just open our hearts, take, um, you know, I just know that to have, to, to, to live as a human in a Sunday morning is to come with all kinds of, uh, almost like scabs built up from just the rocking and rolling and the, the woundedness of living this life. And Lord, I just pray that you'd soften us now. Pray we could take deep breaths and we can, um, not put away who we are or put away what we're carrying, but, uh, but hold those things really tenderly and let you speak. Because um, we, need, we need Jesus to speak to us this morning. So, in his name, we pray. Amen. Okay, so there are, there are entire uh, seminary degrees. Like, you can get a degree in the background of what happened in the story. Um, I don't have a degree in the background of what happened in the story. 
Um, I have a seminary degree that helped me. I'm not going to even give you that because there's a lot of context that we could, we could dig into, and it's very, very interesting. But we do need to understand a little bit of the context of what's going on. Um, some of you that are professional Christians have been doing this a long time, might have you know, grown up hearing about the ancient Jewish ceremonial law and the sacrificial system and the foods that you can eat and can't eat, and all of that is what's going on. But whether you understand any of that or whether this is the first service, uh, Christian service you've ever been to, what you need to know is that what's happening in this story, big picture, is the tension that happens when you get different people together and you get different kinds of people joining the same community. And what I mean by that is you get the clashes of different ways of thinking about the world. You get the clashes of different ways of doing life of what you believe religiously, of, of, of who you associate with, of how you live, your, your customs, your traditions, your values. All of these things happens anytime you're with different groups of people. It's happening even right now in this room, believe it or not. Different people come together and you get these kind of social, cultural, human tensions. And so religiously, what's happening is the Christian church is exploding, and it's exploding into areas that uh, are not homogenous culturally with the Jewish tradition. Christianity started as a Jewish religion. Jesus was Jewish, right? He, he taught in the temple with Jews. But now that we're getting to this point in Acts, and Jesus is actually successful in what he said he would do, which is to send his gospel to the ends of the earth— we're now getting people that are very different that are coming in. And so in just the chapter before, in Acts chapter 10, we get, um, you know, in Acts 11 that we just read is kind of Peter telling what happened. Well, we get the actual story as it happened. And you get this guy named Cornelius who is a Gentile, and he gets told by God, he was a, he was a believer in God. He wasn't Jewish. He was a believer in God. And he gets told by an angel, hey, go grab this guy, Peter, because something that he's got to tell you is something you need to hear. And so at the same time that this guy Cornelius is being told to go talk to Peter, Peter is getting a vision from the Lord that radically breaks down his very cultural, religious view of the world and of what it means to be a Christian. Because Peter was a Jew. And if you know anything about Jews, Jewish religion was an exclusive religion. Baked into the practices of the Jewish religion were things like ceremonial laws and purity laws and what you were allowed to touch and when and what you weren't allowed to put in your mouth and who you were allowed to be with. Do you want to have a fun time? Uh, go back to Leviticus chapter 11 sometime later today and, re and read Leviticus chapter 11 where it talks about a lot of the animals that Peter saw in that sheet thing that was lowered from, from, the, uh, the, from the sky in his vision. And a lot of the things that were on that sheet were things that the, the Jewish people were commanded, do not eat, like reptiles, for whatever reason. They were not allowed to eat lizards. That was part of God's command. And, and let me tell you why that was part of God's command. Because God wanted the Jewish people to look different, not because they were so exclusively great, but because when people look different, what do people do? They look at them. And God wanted the rest of the world to look at the Jews and go, what weirdos? What's going on with them? And then to take a little step closer. And then get closer and go, wow, they're really weird. Maybe I'll take another step closer. And what, they wanted, what God wanted the rest of the world to do with the Jews was to walk into their weirdness, their strangeness, their, their exclusivity, 
and to feel included in the kingdom of God. The Jews were supposed to be the personification of the light of God to the world. The prophets, all across the prophets, it talks about the city on a hill, which we think of as a Jesus thing, being salt and light, which I think is something we preached on recently. That's actually an ancient Jewish thing. God, from the very beginning, had wanted his people to be different so that they were were an aha to the rest of the world. But the problem is that the Jews did what we all do. And they took an exclusivity that was supposed to make them inclusive and that was supposed to make them radically different so that people would actually come in to their community. And they said, no, we're now going to turn this exclusivity that should be inclusive and we're going to make it a wall. And we're going to use it to actually divide ourselves from others because we actually think being God's people means we're special and better than everybody else. And so you get our story where Peter sees a bunch of animals that he knew he was not supposed to eat. And when he's commanded to eat them, he looks at God and says, God forbid. I think that's verse 8. He replied, surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. You love the personality of Peter shining through there. Peter was very proud that he was a good Jew. And he looked at God and said, no, I would never touch those things. And God says to him, do not call unclean something that I have made clean. In other words, the way that you have begun to think about your faith that divides you from others, I want you to change that. I want you to see that your exclusivity is supposed to be a thing that calls the world to an exclusive God so that his community can be inclusive. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. Um, when the Pharisees, uh, which is another group of people that if you read the Gospels, they're, they're kind of the, the, the constant enemies of Jesus. When Jesus is walking around and he's teaching and it says he got in an argument with the Pharisees or you know, the Pharisees were grumbling against him. This group of people was interestingly called something um, at that time. They were called a table fellowship group. That was what they were called. They were a table fellowship group. And the reason they were called the table fellowship group is because they used their religion to create these groups where they would gather around the table and they would eat together and they would practice all of their, it was, it was kind of like where the, the ceremonial law and their purification laws and all those things that were supposed to separate the Jews, it's like where they could act on all those things at the same time. So they'd gather around the table, and if you had to wash your hands the right way before you could come in, you had to wear the right clothes before you could come in, and you had to be the right person to come in. They were called the Table Fellowship Sect. And let me read to you what some uh, um, early ancient Near East scholars said about this Table Fellowship group. This is a book called United by Faith that I would, would highly recommend. It says, The Pharisees were considered a Table Fellowship Sect, They used table fellowship to maintain the purity of their nation as well as to model what they believed should be the exclusive ethnocentric identity of Israel. And what they would do is typically these these table fellowship gatherings would happen in the courtyard of a large house. And the courtyard always had an opening to the street where everyone on the street could see what was happening inside, but they weren't necessarily invited in. And the Pharisees would gather and they would, again, it was like hyper-controlled and all these different, you know, ceremonies and practices and and barriers. And they would practice eating with one another and 
fellowshipping with one another so that with the intentional purpose that it would be an exclusive image to the world to say, you are not welcome because you're not us. There were long lists of those who could not meet the definition, the definition of membership. Such lists included women, Samaritans, Gentiles, individuals with criminal records, anyone who is disabled or sick, tax collectors, those considered, quote, sinners. Also, those with certain occupations were not counted as worthy to be part of the table. Camel drivers, sailors, herdsmen, weavers, tailors, barbers, butchers, physicians, business people, and many others. The only people who qualified were healthy males of pure Hebrew ancestry who held respectable jobs and followed all the laws of the religion. This was an exclusive table fellowship. So again, God called his people to be different. He called his Jewish people to be different so that they could be attractive. And what they had done, which is the same thing, it's the natural like inclination of the human heart. Like you drop the ball, it rolls downhill. Is they took this idea of exclusivity that was supposed to be inclusive and they used it as a barrier to say, we will protect ourselves and be holy. We will protect ourselves and be worthy. We will use what should be attractive and we will make it so unattractive that we keep the purity of our little group. And Jesus came into this setting with the gospel and he made what was exclusive inclusive. Because what did Jesus also do if you look at the gospels? Jesus also did table fellowship, didn't he? How many times have you read in the Gospels a story that begins with, and Jesus as he was reclining at table? That was a table fellowship. Jesus radicalized the idea of table fellowship, and he met in courtyards, but who did he invite? Tax collectors, sinners, women, prostitutes, herdsmen. Who came to his birth? <laughs> Shepherds. Businessmen. Of his 12 disciples, he had Simon the Zealot, which means the most religious, religious, extreme dude, and then he had Matthew the tax collector. Within his own small little table fellowship, and this was just within the Jewish community. So starting even with the Jews, Jesus began to completely dismantle the religion that the Jewish people, not God, but the Jewish people had set up that was exclusive. And so now we get to the book of Acts and Jesus is saying, Peter, it's not just the different kind of Jews that are uh, uh, welcomed into table fellowship. It's the nations. Go, go to this guy who's a, who's a Roman uh, military officer. Go to his family. They're uncircumcised people. They're Gentiles. Meet and eat with them. And he does. And what does he see? The Holy Spirit falls on them. Which isn't just, oh, they're welcome at the table. It's God supernaturally, in some visible way. I don't know if there were tongues of fire. I don't know if there was the wind. Somehow, visibly, experientially, Peter and the Jewish disciples that were with him got to witness the Spirit of God poured out and flowing into these Gentiles. And from then on, in the book of Acts, Christianity is a Gentile religion, Jew and Gentile religion. 
In fact, the very next place, if you keep reading in chapter 11, you'll see about the church in Antioch. It became the biggest church in the ancient world, the biggest Christian church. It was a, it was a city of 500,000 people from all over the world. And the church began to explode after this moment with Peter and the sheet. It began to explode into the whole world. So what does this mean for us? I think that's the, that's the historical message of this story. This is, this is what was happening at the time, what Peter was supposed to get from it. What do we get from this now? I wish I had more time. Um, so I, I'm repping my, uh, my Napier kitchen table uh, hoodie today. We just got a new logo um, a week ago. Peter, thank you very much. Um, one of the members of your church here helped us a lot get this. And at, in the Napier kitchen table, which is a congregation of Midtown, um, we do something, and, and I promise, this was before I was researching this passage and saw that they called themselves a table fellowship sect, but we, our main ministry is something we call table fellowship. Um, and the idea, because of the particular cultural uh, and, and um, geographical area where we are, the idea is that we have lots of different kinds of people, and we have a lot of different people that feel extremely excluded from kind of the regular religious working of Christianity. They don't feel welcome in churches for a lot of reasons. Um, it's the largest public housing uh, community in Nashville, and so there's just, just a mix of things. It's not, it's not one kind of issue. It's just a lot of different things that come along with very historic, concentrated poverty. A lot of family brokenness, a lot of uh, addictions, uh, a lot of violence. And so we have recognized that there are some very intentional things that we have to do to create open doors to the church. And so we've, in many ways, broken down the walls of the church to create the church as a table. And that's something that I hope we're going to be able to continue when we actually move into a building uh, in several months and kind of get some walls back, is to keep that exclusive religion that is extremely inclusive. So let me, let me try to talk about how I take the way that I think this message of this story would apply to the church today. And let me ask you this, what is it that's really behind a feeling of exclusivity? And I think what's behind a feeling of exclusivity is the need and the desire and sometimes even the belief that I'm right, that I've figured it out, which is why exclusivity typically looks like a wall because when you are a little worried that you might not be right or you're really, really concerned with being worthy, what do you do? But you protect your rightness and your worthiness. My kids love High School Musical 1. I don't know about two, three, four, five, six, or seven, but they love High School Musical 1. And kind of the, as silly as it is, the central theme of High School Musical, if I remember it rightly, is this idea of, hey, we don't have to all be in our little groups. Like, you know, the, the athletes don't have to be in their little group and the, uh, you know, um, I don't know. I've, I've lost it. I've already lost the illustration. You get it if you've seen it. But, but, but there's, a, there's a truth to that, that the reason we are exclusive is because we're afraid that we're going to be shown out to not have it all together and to not have the truth or to be right. That's, that's what exclusivity does. Well, Christianity comes in and says, you don't got it right. In fact, Christianity and the Bible uses the word righteous and says, not only are you don't got it right, but you are not righteous. No one is righteous. There is only one who is righteous. And so Jesus comes onto the scene as a picture of what it is to be exclusive. And he says, I'm exclusively exclusive. You don't have to be exclusive because I'm exclusive. 
I've got it right. I am the righteous one. I lived a perfect life. I did everything right. I am worthy of all praise and glory and honor, and you don't have to be. And so what does that mean? It means as Christians, we get to radically be broken. We get to radically be wrong. We get to radically be unworthy because we are coming toward and aligning ourselves and have been bought by one who is right and worthy. And so the picture of exclusivity and inclusivity in Christianity is the world wants to make, and I wish I could draw this, the world wants to make life like all these, these like imagine arrows going in opposite directions. Like you're either this or you're that. You're either a right-wing Republican or your left-wing Democrat, or insert any other kind of binary way of looking at things. And, and there's this tension because these two opposite things feels like are getting pulled together. Well, Jesus says, guess what? Every one of you is excluded. You're excluded by your sin. You're all going that direction away from me. But what is the cross? The cross of Jesus is a place where he turns all those arrows, all of us that are kind of going off in all kinds of crazy directions. We're excluded. In fact, in Ephesians 2, it says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ, which is the cross of Christ. For he himself is our peace, and he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing walls that bring hostility. So in other words, in this reality of all of us and our separate journeys to be worthy and right, we're all going a thousand different directions because we all have a thousand ways we think we're going to attain that. And Jesus says, turn around, come back to me. I am the exclusive one. You are excluded, but now in me, you are included. And so what is the church, y'all? The church is a group of people that are all, from all our different directions, all our different races and cultures and backgrounds and pet sins, we all come back to one whole, pure, worthy Jesus. And now all the arrows are going into him. You see it? In Ephesians 2, it says, and in one body, he reconciled both of them, meaning Jews and Gentiles. But in this case, all of us, reconciled all of us through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So two things this should do for us, two implications. Number one, it means we are free to honestly assess where we live exclusively. Where we live with exclusivity. Some of you live with exclusivity because of the community you've chosen to put yourself with. You're very happy and proud and excited and feel very safe in the community that you've chosen to put yourself in. That might be geographically. That might be in your friend group. That might be with just the people that you and your family associate with. And you have made something good and beautiful, which is affinity. It's a beautiful thing. Common beliefs, common practices, common habits, beautiful thing but you've done like what the Pharisees did and you've now made it exclusive and now it's the place where you get your sense of rightness and worthiness. So the implication is that we're free to honestly assess where we do that. 
It might be based on fear, what I'm afraid of, the kind of people I'm afraid of, what I'm afraid of becoming, who I promise to myself every day that I'll never be like that. Typically, you run the opposite direction, and that's the place you're running to for exclusivity. You can honestly assess where you live too small to protect yourself and protect your rightness. In other words, like Peter, where you live with law, where you have built these laws for yourself and laws for your community that are supposed to protect you. And Jesus says, no, I've come because I'm the fulfillment of the law. Bring your laws to me. Pick up my righteousness, my character. See the law that you are supposed to live by, which is law according to me and my example. The second one, uh, first, we're free to honestly assess where we live exclusively. And secondly, we're free to pursue unity in the gospel because exclusivity just takes you away. You might be going exclusively this direction and find out that all your other friends are going exclusively a different direction no one ever comes together that way. Instead, with the gospel, we turn ourselves in and we pursue the unity of being needy of Jesus together. The unity of believing the gospel, that he has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. So we, we show grace to one another in that place. We actually begin to, crazy, we begin to get excited about our differences and I see our differences as a means of connection because it's not, my identity is not on stake, at stake. My worthiness is not at stake. My rightness is not at stake. Who knows? I could be completely wrong. And so I can fight for what I believe with you because I'm not holding it so tightly because Jesus is the one that holds my rightness. So that gives us a radical humility, a radical grace for one another. And it gives us, finally, the courage to pursue difficult relationships. And it might mean the courage to put down that dear exclusivity that you've been living your life with, that dear protectedness, that dear um, homogeneity that might feel so good. This actually gives you the courage to pursue the difficulty of stepping out of that, to pursuing people that are different, to engaging you and your family with people that look different, talk different, have different practices and customs, and they might even look a lot like you. But they might not. Um, Susie and I have had the chance to fumble our way through this for several years. Um, and trust me, it was not with this clear sense of, yeah, this is what we're going to go do for the Lord at the beginning. Um, it was absolutely a journey of humility. And I don't mean like, conscious practice humility, I mean realizing humility, <laughs> like, oh, wow, ouch, this is hard, or I don't like how I think about this or that or that person. So just to encourage you, um, there's no right place to start other than where you are. There's no right place to get to before you begin. The rightness is only found in obedience to Jesus. And the beautiful thing about obedience is you never have to wonder what the next step of obedience is. I deeply believe the Holy Spirit always tells you what the right next step of obedience is. Now, he might not tell you what steps two, three, and four look like, which is often where we're thinking, but the very next step of obedience, even if it's to stop and pray and to begin to ask questions of yourself or you and your family that push you out in different ways, 
The Lord is gracious, and he will do it. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you uh, for this story. Um, thank you that uh, you came and died on the cross uh, so that Peter could be uh, humbled and reminded of how uh, unexclusive he was, uh, of how unwonderful he was, and yet how in you, who is exclusive and wonderful, he was wonderful too. And uh, it's just like Janie was, was singing and praying about, Lord, that we would uh, be able to see each other with humble and loving eyes, and we'd be able to see, each self, be able to see ourselves with humble and loving eyes. Um, we need your gospel to do that. We need the blood of Jesus to cleanse us. Uh, and thank you that you've done that. And so it's in Jesus' name, the only exclusive one that we can pray. Amen.